Let's see this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today I'm bringing on a really good friend of mine, Christina Rossetti. Christina, can you say hello? Hello. So I'm kind of baffled that we've never had you on the show before because you're like my sidekick or I'm your sidekick, depending on where we're at, going down to all these compounds and meeting all of these different people. How have you never been on the podcast before? Well, this is the first time you've invited me. Okay. Okay. Well, that one's on me. That's fair. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm glad we did that. Why don't you tell us about yourself? So I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Riverside, but I just moved to Utah last year uh, to live the Deseret Dream and to be the Mormon Studies Fellow at the University of Utah. And I'm using this last year to finish my dissertation on different Mormon groups and how they use the dead as a source of authority. And that includes fundamentalists. So I have to ask you, because everybody else does, what does a Catholic <laughs> what does a Catholic girl like yourself find interesting? Why would you devote your life to studying Mormons? And why does a good Catholic like the Mormons? Uh, I read Rough Stone Rolling my very first year of graduate school. And when I say I read Rough Stone Rolling and liked it, I mean I read it in two days. And I was captivated by Joseph Smith and the Restoration. And I know that that's a strange reason why someone would just become so enthralled by Mormonism, but that's the story. So does um, that mean we get to baptize you? Um, well. <laughs> All right. Be honest. Tell us, what did you say that you, you would ba- be baptized under certain conditions? Please tell us what those conditions are. Yeah, there's, there's a standing offer at this point that if you can find a font and fill it with Dirty Diet Coke, I'll get in it tomorrow. I, I'm here for it. Dirty Diet Coke, for those uh, Gentiles that don't understand, are Coke that you don't put any alcohol in, but you put lime flavoring, actual limes, coconut flavoring, and am I missing anything else? That's it. Yeah. And it's incredible. But I would, I want to also add another qualifier to that, that I recently kind of was re, I re-realized. I also just don't really want to go through the missionary lessons again. So if we can do the Diet Coke and no missionary lessons again, that's kind of the scenario within which I'll get baptized. Also, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, but it is a huge insult in the Mormon world. You're not very maternal, so... No, no. Also, you know, actually, even no, no Diet Coke involved, if the church brought back the Adam God doctrine, I'll get baptized regular. Why is that? That's a, literally the first time I've ever heard anyone say that ever. I'm not, it's my favorite thing that Mormonism ever did. So just so you know, other groups, you might be aware, believe in that doctrine and have indeed brought it back. So, Well, they just never got rid of it. Don't get their hopes up. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I'm just going to do this weird Catholic thing for a while. All right. Well, someday we'll get you in the water. But anyway, Christina is um, coming to Sunstone. She's going to be presenting on several topics, but one of them are the Diaries of Leonard Arrington. A new book was published, and I'm going to let Christina talk about that. And we're going to talk about who Leonard Arrington is and why he's important to the subject. So, Christina, do you want to bring us in? Just tell us about the book very first, and we'll link to it. Yeah. So the Diaries of Leonard Arrington were uh, published this year by Signature Books. And if you haven't read anything from Signature Books, I just want to give them a shout out because I think they produce some of the most incredible books in Mormon studies, really amazing documentary histories. They're actually publishing the School of the Prophets of Salt Lake's documents next year or this year, um, which is really cool. So they do just really cool stuff and really important work in Mormon studies. But 
What's your favorite uh, signature book title right now? Uh, right now, the Arrington Diaries are up there, but forever it was, you know, for most of my life or time studying Mormonism, it was Quinn's Mormonism and Magical Worldview. But I, they also published the Diaries of Emma Lyman. It's called 13th Apostle. And that one's a really incredible book as well. Wait, how did you pronounce it? Emma Lyman. Okay. That's... I pronounced it the Mormon way. I thought I you were talking about a woman in Mormon studies I didn't know. Um, I oh. always say Amasa. But no. I think it. I think that there's some debate in the historical community about the pronunciation of his name. Well, I want to throw it out there that Richard Bushman is his great great grandson or something. I don't know. Don't quote me. And he says Amasa, so I'm going to say that Richard Bushman's the authority on that. All right, all right. Pulling the Bushman <laughs> card. Fair. Pulling okay. the Bushman card. Uh, no, but so this year, actually, at Mormon History Association, Gary Bergera, who was the editor of the Arrington Diaries, actually won the. Leonard J. Arrington Award, which was really incredible to see him win the award in Arrington's name for the Arrington Diaries. So this book has already received a lot of accolades. People who've read it love it. But I will say it's 3000 pages. <laughs> well, and that's why I brought you on. So I don't have to read it yet. Just kidding. I do plan on I do plan on reading it. Leonard Arrington has been so important to Mormon studies, but also very influential to me. And on this podcast, I've, I've sourced a lot of the research in this podcast from a lot of Arrington's work. And he was really, this, this doesn't quite feel like the right word, but almost ra- radical in his openness did radical to history. Things. Yeah. So tell us, give us a primer about who he is first, and then we'll talk about his impact on modern day fundamentalism. Yeah, so Leonard Arrington was the church historian uh, from 1972 to 1982, which was a really critical time for church history. It's when the new Mormon studies, the new Mormon history began or was happening. So explain um, to explain what that means, because a lot of people don't understand what new Mormon history means. Yeah, so there was a time when books related and histories related to Mormonism were very much I don't want to say one-sided, but I think they were one-sided in that they presented a very faithful image of the church. They presented an image of the church that might not have always been historically accurate. And so this was a time when the archives were being opened, historians were going in, using primary documents, and creating a Mormon history that was true to the past and true to the people that lived in the past. And Leonard Arrington was really at the forefront of that, of wanting a more transparent church through a more open archive. And what I would say is, I would say that it was heritage-based before. It was people telling mm. oral histories, which which aren't necessarily inaccurate. But right. in this way, it was a way to sort of, there, there was a period in Mormonism after the first initial settlers, pioneers died out, where Mormons really worked hard to revere their ancestors. And as a result of that, all of the bad stuff got washed away and we only kept sort of the faith promoting good stuff. And Leonard Arrington didn't come to bring up the bad stuff too. Instead, he approached it in a more scientific way, which was this dispassionate, almost secular way to look at history. Like we're we're not going to put a judgment on good things or bad things. We're just going to tell what the record states. Yeah, and in his language, he said that he wanted to tell a history warts and all. So people like Brigham Young, for example, he wasn't necessarily trying to create a negative image of Brigham Young, but he wanted to create a more complex and full picture of Brigham Young, a Brigham Young warts and all. And one of the funny stories of that is a book was published where it talks about Brigham Young chewing tobacco. And the church was not pleased with that. And that's not necessarily a negative portrayal of Brigham, but that was 
part of who Brigham Young was. So tell us who is Arrington. I mean, you told me what he, what he did, but let's talk about his tenure as church historian because it, it was really kind of a critical shift in Mormonism. It very much was. So Leonard Arrington, um, he was he wasn't a general authority, which was unique at the time. So for before and currently, the church historian was a, was a general authority. So right now, the, the church historian is Elder Stephen Snow, um, who came to MHA this last weekend. He's really interested in church history and a pretty um, incredible man. And he's a 70. So generally, the church historian was also a general authority. And he was a major shift in that because he was not a general authority. Um, he had studied agricultural economics at University of Idaho. He did economics at University of North Carolina. He was a trained historian. Um, he was teaching at Utah State, uh, I'm sorry, at Utah State Agricultural College. And while there, he had his book, The Great Basin Kingdom, published by Harvard University. So he was a trained historian that was brought in by the church and called as the church historian. And that in itself was big because he was not a general authority. He was a professional historian. Um, so that in itself was a major shift. So um, let's talk about that. Up until that point, how much do we know about how history was being collected in the LDS church? So at the time, so the LDS Church has always had an archive. You can go visit it. It's in the Church History Library. Um, it used to be housed in the church office building, um, and that was very much there. And people had access to it, but the access was incredibly restricted. And I I want to say that with the note that the archive is still a restricted space in the LDS Church. Documents are still restricted or closed to research. Um, what but, kind of documents would be restricted? Currently? Yeah, just in general, what what do we consider restricted documents? Yeah, so current restricted documents are um, meeting minutes from the First Presidency. Uh, they are certain diaries, especially of excommunicated members. So if you were uh, in leadership or if you were any person really who was excommunicated, your diaries are closed. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the diaries of Emma Saliman that Signature published was such a big deal, because his diaries had been, uh, or most of his diaries had been closed. Um, marital records are closed. Adoption records are closed. Um, things related to the temple are closed to research. So that's kind of the gist of it. But the big one that's closed are the minutes of church presidents and a lot of their diaries are unaccessible. So the Joseph Smith papers was really revolutionary because it released minutes and writings of Joseph Smith, um, but for the most part, diaries and personal writings of church presidents are and general authorities are closed. So um, explain to me, and I think we're going to get into this, but really Leonard Arrington plays a part into this mm -hmm. deep distrust that a lot of Mormon fundamentalists still to this day have towards the LDS church because of their history. But without getting into Leonard's history in general, do you want to sort of explain sort of uh, the tension there and why most fundamentalists don't trust the LDS church today? Yeah. So one of the things that I just want to say on for about Leonard Arrington that I think really matters that is really revealed in these diaries is that in the very first entries of these diaries, Arrington talks about the tension that he feels between being able to produce an objective and historically accurate history and a history that is faithful and that will promote faith in members of the church. And he really believes that that's possible and that he can do it. Um, and as the diaries move forward, you see that 
confidence in the ability to produce that kind of wane um, as he realizes how hard that's going to be. But in terms of fun and the issue of fundamentalism comes up a lot because there's fundamentals are some of the first people that published documents that were restricted access, especially sermons by Brigham Young that we'll talk about. Um, but the archives can vindicate people. Um, Leonard Arrington talks about how history has consequences, but it's also a source of vindication. And that's precisely a problem for the church, especially in terms of fundamentalists is because documents from church leaders who were involved in the, the maintenance of the practice of plural marriage are in the archive. And we find that the, the, fun, the, docu- the doctrines and the practices that make fundamentalist Mormons unique are found in the archive as something that was maintained for longer than the LDS church might want to portray. So and I'll just give you a few examples. You know, I've talked to, there's a few of us like Christina and myself and Stephanie Griswold and Greg Prince and others who really want to make sure that this history of fundamentalism does not disappear. And I actually know a lot of really great historians at the church, the LDS church history department also do not want to see this history disappear. But I found that um, people, when I'm trying to, you know, connect the two, there is this huge reticence because some have stories where they turn in diaries of an ancestor that mm-hmm. are now locked down and they don't have access to and, and things like that. And so the history department has changed a lot since, you know, what we're going to talk about where they, you know, you can take in your ancestor's journal and they can never leave your hands if you want and they can just scan the information and then you can return with it. So it's, it's really changed. But I would say that there's some good reason why you know, a lot of people felt skeptical of the LDS church's intentions with these documents for so long. Yeah. And I mean, if the LDS church is the only group that has access to these texts and these documents, the way the history is portrayed is going to be affected by that. And so that was a concern by fundamentalists. But the other side of that, that became a concern for the LDS church is they, and Leonard Arrington talks about this, that they came to realize pretty quickly that if they don't publish the documents, someone else will. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about who some of those people were. So walk us through, so Leonard Arrington in these diaries, I'm going to link to this book because it actually has a whole section about modern fundamentalism that's going to be Mm -hmm. really important to understanding both the LDS church's relation to fundamentalists and fundamentalists in general. But walk us through sort of the early parts of the diaries and sort of set this up for us. Yeah, so some of the things that were particularly interesting is that when when Leonard Arrington first got this position, he had really big dreams and aspirations for what books were going to be published. He had this whole idea for a sesquicentennial series um, that he compiled so many really incredible historians to do research on, and he really he broke this up into different sections of church history. Um, he had a lot of really great aspirations, and what he came to find pretty quickly is that certain things couldn't be written about. Um, and one of those things most notably is polygamy, um, that the general authorities were apprehensive of including polygamy. And that includes when talking about Brigham Young, not including polygamy, which as your listeners all know, Brigham Young was into polygamy. So, uh, so, so talk to us about that. Like, are there any specific examples yeah. where he was asked not to? Yeah. So one of the best examples is July 3rd, 1972, Homer Durham published um, the first edition of the Gospel Kingdom. And one, I, I want to quickly mention real quick that all the when we talk about an edited diary, that's not to say that things were edited out. So the Arrington diaries are produced in full. 
and Gary Bergera did not edit out parts of the diary. So in terms, the only things that were redacted were names of people who were not general authorities, who were just regular people having struggles with things who are still alive. So an important part of these diaries is Leonard Arrington's candor. And he does speak very directly to specific general authorities. So a lot of the quotes from the book have specific general authorities names in them that Leonard Arrington is referencing and showing that this person had a problem with what was happening. So okay, me specifically calling out general authorities. Um, so Homer Durham uh, published first edition of the gospel kingdom and David O. McKay had criticisms of this. And the first was regarding John Taylor's writings and the writings were titled polygamy, a commandment of God. And David O. McKay at the time thought that this would quote comfort fundamentalists who had been involved with the families of general authorities specifically. So there was already, you know, first few months of and Leonard is he Arrington saying that as a derogatory thing, like we don't want to comfort the fundamentalists. Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah. So there was a concern of vindication of letting fundamentalists know that this was a reality um, and of bolstering their position. And so, so I do have to say, yeah. one of the tensions in the LDS Mormon community with LDS Mormons and ex Mormons are they feel like the church deliberately tried to hide church history and. To me, I totally like I felt that way before and I sympathize with it, but it's complicated. And yet we do know that they did it. They asked and censored people like Leonard Arrington. But why wouldn't they want to validate fundamentalists? So in this instance, I mean, I think the LDS church has a strong need to define correct authority. You've talked about that. You know, most people who talk about Mormon history and contemporary Mormonism reference the fact that the LDS church has a concern for creating boundaries of authority and ensuring that those boundaries are maintained. And fundamentalism is a very direct questioning of those boundaries. And it presents an image of another kind of Mormonism. And that in itself can be read as a threat. And so to say that the fundamentalists might be correct about something or to give them some kind of, to cut them some kind of slack could be read as, well, maybe they're right. And so... I think that's been a historic concern for the church. Yeah, and we're, we're still talking to insiders in a sense, but to anyone who's new to this podcast or new to Mormon history or doesn't understand Mormonism, the LDS church abandoned officially the doctrine in 1890. It's a good thing to reference. <laughs> yeah, um, so we were all polygamous. We all have polygamous ancestors. And then because of what I believe to be political pressures and financial pressures, the church finally succumbs in 1890. Of course, it doesn't end even amongst the leadership. They still believed it was a doctrine of God. But over the next century, they would spend a lot of time distancing themselves from it, which, of course, mm -hmm. makes fundamentalists furious and for good reason. And so when we're talking about the LDS Church trying to censor the record, this this is why, because they made this official pronouncement and they had to stick to it. Yeah. And fundam because fundamentalists look at that as as you know source of apostasy in the LDS church that's a hard line to toe because on the LDS perspective fundamentalists are deemed apostate um, and many are excommunicated but on the complete other side fundamentalists look at the LDS church and say no you abandoned an eternal principle so polygamy specifically is a really hot topic in terms of fundamentalism in church history in the 1970s and then for context what's important is in the 1970s people were becoming fundamentalists all the time. Um, you know, I've joked with you quite a bit that 
every man in the 1970s read Truth Magazine and became a fundamentalist overnight. Um, and that's just what was happening. Study groups were forming, people were learning the deep doctrines, and people were joining the fundamentalist church. And so this was a particular threat in the 1970s. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important thing to bring up. It wasn't just about that they had this pride in the fact that we've moved away from this now. But like you said, if you read the old texts, a lot of people were doing that as things are becoming published and um, more accessible. People mm-hmm. are joining these fundamentalist groups left and right. This is when we have the all these study groups right. where faithful Latter-day Saints are trying to understand the deeper doctrines. And they discover that this is a doctrine and they discover sort of the history of it and they convert to fundamentalism. Yeah. And I, there's actually a really interesting quote um, from Leonard Arrington that I want to read to you that directly relates to this and that there's a concern about people joining fundamentalism. And it happened a little bit later on in the diaries in 1976 on January 30. Uh, Leonard Arrington writes that Dr. Lindsay Curtis and Henry Richards, which were just you know two individuals, they were appointed as a unofficial committee to work with Mark E. Peterson on Mormon fundamentalists who were tempted to join fundamentalist groups. And he says, quote, these brethren, these brethren are going to speak with bishops whose ward members are experiencing trouble along that line, speak in ward sacrament meetings, in state conferences, and speak with fundamentalists and others who are being persuaded by the fundamentalists. They have, of course, had many important conversations already. Glenn says the single biggest problem is the failure of the church to acknowledge that there were plural marriages performed after 1890. They have documented proof that there were official marriages performed after that date. Also, the failure of the church to acknowledge the validity of the revelation of 1886. Joseph Fielding Smith denied it, but it is almost certainly genuine. And so he's acknowledging, for those who might not know, in 1886, John Taylor um, supposedly received a revelation indicating that plural marriage needed to continue to be practiced. Uh, and he passed you know, the church leadership on to men who were going to keep that alive. And the LDS church has said that this revelation is not valid um, because you know, there is no copy in John Taylor's hand. Although in this, you know, and Leonard Arrington is saying that it most certainly is a genuine revelation. But that's a concern that people are learning about this history. They're learning about polygamy and people are becoming fundamentalist. And this is something that I encounter even when I talk to some uh, church historians, I would say Mormon historians, not necessarily church historians, but like people who do low level internships or something, they've never even heard about these revelations, mm-hmm. which is shocking because, and I think that that's intentional. If we know that there is a legitimate revelation from a legitimate church prophet saying yeah. that, you know, fundamentalism is legitimate, I mean, it doesn't say that, but it says polygamy will never leave the earth and they're charged to keep it alive. That really complicates the narrative. And and I agree with Arrington here, which is the denial is way more painful than the truth. And so people, I think, wouldn't convert as readily if they knew that there wasn't a cover-up, if they understood, if the church was forthcoming about it. And it's interesting that he saw that at the time. So explain to us, so this is a big deal for him to acknowledge that the revelation is legitimate. First of all, and tell us who Marky Peterson is, too, because he has a huge part to play in this history. Uh, So Marky Peterson was an apostle at the time, and he and Boyd K. Packer are referenced quite a bit throughout the diaries together in same sentences. 
um, as members of the Brethren who were not necessarily always in support of presenting a more honest and objective view of the history. And so throughout the diaries, you can really read a battle between Leonard J. Arrington and these two apostles um, who were struggling to decide how to portray a history. And Marky Peterson was not a fan of portraying a history that he read to be unfaithful because he did, Mark E. Peterson believed that there was a way in which history could lead people out of the church. Okay. And that is a very important part to this whole thing to -hmm. inspire future leaders. And on the one hand, it is happening, right? People are being led to fundamentalism or leaving the church, but clamping down, in my opinion, doesn't always work. No, um, no. And I mean, it. people are leaving the church for fundamentalism. But I think, and this is just my opinion and my reading of it, the numbers of people leaving fundamentalism, leaving the LDS church and joining fundamentalism prior to 1978, and of course that changes in 1978, don't seem big enough to warrant this kind of concern. And so I, there is a concern of people leaving the church and just leaving generally, but leaving to become fundamentalists at this point in 1972 wasn't in my reading, as large of a concern as I think he was creating. However, there are some prominent people, which we're going to talk about, that I think played into a particular threat. Yes. And so we can talk about that. But so so that was the one thing that he said. I didn't mean to interrupt your timeline. So no, you're good. Um, But I did want to mention that Arrington... So there's two things that Arrington talks about that directly reference your point. The first one he looks at, he's talking about specific, he talks about specific documents that were concealed that kind of, that fundamentalists were reading and were talking about. Um, But first I want to mention that Leonard Arrington didn't really negatively talk about fundamentalists. He didn't like, he didn't, he wasn't going to join them and he didn't speak of them as correct or highly favored, but he certainly wasn't speaking of them in a way that was particularly negative in any way. And so there's a pretty long quote that I think might be interesting to fundamentalists or people who are interested in fundamentalism because he talks about them as kind of the equivalent of Mormon monastics. You should um, read I it. Will you read it to us? Yeah. Monastics has a really, you know, that's really heavily loaded, but it's just interesting. So um, in 1973, he talked with Arizonans about the growth of fundamentalism. And he specifically references that in his estimation, there's about 20,000 to 30,000 fundamentalists in Utah. That's Leonard Arrington's number, not mine. Um, but talking to Arizonans, he says, quote, I was told stories about certain previously loyal and devoted members of the LDS church who had been active in the church and then suddenly joined the fundamentalists. And it occurred to me that the fundamentalist groups are playing a role similar to that of the monasteries in ancient and medieval Christendom, or perhaps modern Christendom. Joining the fundamentalists is like retreating from life or society, from social and political society, society into a little protected world of their own. They make no attempt to accommodate to the ways of the world. They set up their own standards and conditions and essentially go into seclusion. This is a way out for devoted members who find it impossible to face the problems of the modern world, who find the accommodations just too much to strain, too much of a strain, who are not able to bridge the gap between their Mormon heritage and the blatant secular world of Babylon, which surrounds them. Fundamentalists are something like the equivalent of an LDS monastic order. People brought up in a rural atmosphere with a particular way of life cannot adjust to the loyalties and compromises of the urban life that they that they confront in Phoenix, in Salt Lake City, in Bountiful, in Los Angeles, and in other places in the West. 
They react against the different values of urbanized society and retreat back into the simple, straightforward values of their heritage, which means withdrawing into the group of fundamentalists. End quote. And I so, mean, that's he, not that's not untrue. No. And so while, while that's not, you know, talking about like retrenchment and like retreating and seclusion, like those are negative, usually negative connotations. But the way he talks about how, you know, retreating back into a simple, straightforward value of their heritage, that's not in a set, that's not a specifically negative way of reading fundamentalism. It's a very, I wouldn't even say compassionate read. I mean, it seems compassionate by standards of other leaders. It just seems like a more complete understanding of how fundamentalists would have, many would have seen themselves at the time. Yeah, I mean, but and while not positive, like some of the language of maintaining a Mormon heritage, like fundamentalists see themselves as doing that in a lot of ways. But I was just surprised that a mem- like a church historian would be willing to give that much credibility to what the fundamentalists are doing. And so that's what we mean by radical, right? The fact that we have a church employee with such, I don't know, official voice acknowledging this must have felt very dangerous and threatening at the time. Absolutely. And what's interesting is throughout the diaries, I didn't get a read of any very negative reaction to Mormon fundamentalism. But what's interesting and what I thought was kind of funny is he did at the end of his life have a very negative outlook on evangelical fundamentalists. And fundamental, like biblical fundamentalism. He did have kind of a negative perception of that. I would say that that still is pervasive, even even amongst myself sometimes, because our history of Mormonism is Christians trying to rescue us from Mormonism. And so one of of my favorite stories is I have this Facebook group of uh, where we talk about TV shows, like naughty TV shows like Game of Thrones. (laughs) And we I once accidentally let in an evangelical Christian. I had no idea. I let him in. I had no idea. He comes and, and, and the group has ex-Mormons and Mormons and they never get along, right? Well, the, the evangelical Christian comes in and starts preaching to us about why we shouldn't be watching such terrible shows. And it just warmed my heart to see ex-Mormons and Mormons rally together. Like nothing, <laughs> nothing brings Mormons and ex-Mormons together like an evangelical Christian in the house. I mean, that was just reminded me of when I, I went down to Manti with some fundamentalist friends of mine and the evangelicals were on the street kind of yelling at everyone who was from the restoration. And all of a sudden, I saw LDS people alongside fundamentalists and their weird Catholic friend um, defending Mormonism against an evangelical. Like it brought the fundamentalists and the Mormons and their weird Catholic (laughs) together. And that's that's what I'm saying. Like, and no disrespect to evangelicals, because we have many that listen to this show. But I would as a by way of suggestion, if you want to be more effective, you have to acknowledge the very tense history between Mormons and other Christians. Absolutely. But even in Arrington, I think Arrington, and I, you know, I don't know. I know there's a wide variety of views of the Bible and of literal readings of history and the Bible in Mormonism. Um, But I want to say Arrington had a leniency about him that felt unexpected to me. Toward the end of his life, he talked about how he disagreed with the fundamentalist evangelical fundamentalist position that the Bible was the word of God without human intervention. He talks about that it might not necessarily be needed that there was a literal vision of Joseph Smith, and maybe he just saw God and Jesus in a metaphor. Um, And so that's a reason that I think these diaries outside of fundamentalism might be really important for people, is seeing that early on in the 1980s, Leonard Arrington is creating kind of 
uh, the possibility that maybe there's more than one way to believe in Mormonism. And maybe a literalistic version might not be for everyone. And that's fine. Are you trying to say that Leonard Arrington <laughs> pioneered the there's more than one way to Mormon? You know, he did go to Sunstone a lot. I can dig Sunstone. it. I actually just argued with a faithful LDS person the other day saying why I was, you know, robbing Leonard Arrington of his words by saying Leonard Arrington came to Sunstone, you should too. And they're like, well, he wouldn't come now. Actually, I think he would come now. I absolutely think he would. He was he was super into it. He really liked Sunstone. So. He was very open and um, like a dispassionate, right? He was curious. So yeah. So talk about what was his relationship like with Marky Peterson? Yeah. So the general gist, um, you know, like I mentioned, Leonard Arrington had this vision of producing a, a history that could be simultaneously objective and professional and appeal to professional historians and at the same time be faith promoting and faithful. And Marky Peterson did not share that vision with Leonard Arrington at all. And in fact, the brethren at the time shut down a lot of Arrington's projects. So Arrington came in to the church historian position with a lot of dream projects. He created a really incredible team of historians and had them working on different things to produce church history. And time and again, his projects were shut down. Um, what were some of those projects? So the sesquicentennial series was the big one, and that's one that comes up time and again. But a project that did go through um, was Story of the Latter-day Saints, which is now out of print. And that one was mentioned multiple times because it got a lot of pushback from the Brethren for not being faithful enough. And so I actually went, it, it was published by Deseret Book, I think. But I went to Deseret Book a few days ago and I asked if they had it, um, and I got a hard no. So. Uh, there were books that were published and retroactively got a lot of pushback. And they even, he even mentions how he doesn't, how the brethren might not have read the whole thing. Um, but it got to the point where representatives of the brethren were to read everything produced by the church history department before it was published. And eventually the, at the end of Arrington's tenure, the church history department was actually moved out of temple square in that area. It was moved to BYU. Um, and so the affiliations as Arrington got, as Arrington progressed in his calling, the affiliations with the church itself dwindled, but their hands were still very much involved in what could and couldn't be published. And like I mentioned, the Brigham Young tobacco story, that was really representative that the brethren had a problem with Brigham Young smoking tobacco and Brigham Young having, uh, having unfaithful sons. Um, and I actually shared that story when we did a panel on the Arrington Diaries uh, and Jim Allen was there and Jim Allen was, an was the assistant church historian to Leonard Arrington. And he laughed because he remembered that moment that the worst case scenario was Brigham Young being a polygamist and Brigham Young chewing tobacco. So there was a tension with the brethren. And one of the things I really appreciated, but also was kind of surprised was how candid Leonard Arrington was in pointing out the exact brethren that had a problem with him, especially because in the first page of the diary, first pages of the diary, Leonard Arrington says that he was called as church historian. And so now he's going to keep a diary. And his son told him to do this because it would be read one day. And so Arrington knew that we were all going to read this diary. And nevertheless, he calls out Boyd K. Packer and Marky Peterson repeatedly. Okay, yeah. And Marky Peterson, well, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but uh, Marky Peterson is known for being the guy that excommunicates a bunch of fundamentalists. If he, if he finds LDS people are dipping in those waters, he goes after them. Yeah. And early, 
and th- this is kind of an important, this will be an, end up being an important segue eventually to when we talk about the archive and who was going in it. Um, but when early on, when Leonard J. Arrington met with the apostles, it was specifically Boyd K. Packer, who was on an advisory committee with Elder, with um, Marky Peterson. I called him Elder Peterson. That was the weirdest thing. Um, and the concern was, quote, giving access to sacred materials in the archive to unfriendly persons. And so it was those two very particularly who were concerned about who could have access to the archive. Did they define what unfriendly meant? Yeah, um, they do. And it's actually, I think, the weirdest um, grouping of humans that exists. And I'll talk a little bit about them in detail. But throughout the diaries, you know, the Tanners, Sandra and Gerald Tanner Tanner are mentioned, which shouldn't be surprising. They're very much labeled as anti-Mormon all the time because they were Mormon. They became evangelicals. And then they published quite a bit about the Mormon church and it was perceived as highly negative. They mentioned Michael Marquardt, which is I thought that one was strange until I realized that a lot of his early publications were through the Tanners. And then the one that kills me is Fred Collier, who took Mormonism to an 11 because he's a fundamentalist and he's somehow lumped in with the anti-Mormons, a fundamentalist lumped in with the anti-Mormons. So talk to us about who Fred Collier is, because we're going to cover him at some point on this podcast. He's still living. But let's talk about who he is. Leonard Arrington actually describes who Fred Collier is. Do you want me to read how he describes it? Yeah. It's just like a good paragraph on who he is and what his life was like um, and how he got to being being a fundamentalist. Okay. So Fred Collier, um, this is how, this is a pretty, it's a pretty long paragraph, but this is how Leonard Arrington understood who Fred Collier was. And again, one of the things that's really interesting is it's not particularly negative, except for the part where he starts to get into the fact that Fred Collier was taking things out of the archive that shouldn't be taken. And Leonard Arrington goes as far as to say that Fred Collier stole from the archive. And we'll talk a lot about what he particularly stole, supposedly. Um, But this is how, how Leonard Arrington talks about him. Fred Collier was a carpenter in the Ogden area who became interested in church history and began to give it intensive study in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And again, like you mentioned so many times in your podcast, not abnormal in this time for people to start having intensive studies about deep doctrine. Uh, By 1972 or 1973, he had decided that the church had veered from its historic past by dropping polygamy, by turning against the Adam-God theory, and by failure to practice the law of consecration in the form of the United Order. By 1973, his bishop, Richard Sadler, a historian at Weber State, was, quote, laboring with him, but he would not be labored with. He was adamant and was finally excommunicated about 1974. Nonetheless, he was sincere and honest and dedicated. It was brought to my attention that he has been using the unpublished sermons of Brigham Young, I learned about his apostate tendencies near the end of 1972 and observed he was still using our richest and most intimate research materials. So I was raising the question about denying him the use of these since I felt sure he was was active in one of the apostate groups. They did deny him use. He employed a person, however, to look up the things for him. We have since learned that he has used unscrupulous means to obtain material. Specifically, he has had an unrecognized assistant check out a microfilm, substitute another in the machine, run off to a duplicator outside the building, and then come back and place the original back in the machine. In a sense, Collier has stolen copies of many documents. This has made it possible for him to publish the underground items which he has distributed. 
I suppose it would be libelous to assert that he was a thief, but we can infer that he broke library rules and that we were completely justified in refusing him access to the library archives. <laughs> so yeah, wow. that's who Fred Collier was. He, he was an LDS guy who read church history and became a fundamentalist. Tale as again, old as time. Yeah, tale as old as time. And Fred was definitely not alone. And in fact, a mm-hmm. lot of people like Robert Ray Black, who, who I've interviewed, yeah. has talked about the Mormon underground. And what yeah, that means are Leonard people... Arrington talk, Leonard Arrington talks about them simultaneously and how... Explain to us who they were, because Fred was part of that. Yeah, so the Mormon underground, in you know, how Leonard Arrington was understanding them that there was a publication, the Mormon Underground Press, um, and he equates that to Fred Collier, but it was a group that was publishing sermons that were that Leonard Arrington calls the, quote, bad sermons of Brigham Young, um, that talk about the specific, the specific attention was given to the Adam-God doctrine that are talking about deeper doctrines, and they were circulating these publications, and people were, and one of the best examples was the unpublished sermons of Brigham Young that Robert Ray Black edited and Fred Collier published. And they were circulating these documents and people were reading them and they were being compelled to join fundamentalism. And one of the, t- the some of the times that were particularly problematic for Arrington was that he was standing outside general conference, uh, tracting the Adam God doctrine, but people were joining. Like, so he was, so this is another thing I want a lot of LDS people to know. We always get protesters at general conference. We get protesters at our Mormon pageants. I always thought that they were evangelicals that hated us because that's how they present themselves usually. Mm -hmm. But most of those guys, one of the biggest guys who protest conference is um, John Singer's son, John Singer. He grew up Mormon fundamentalist. A lot of these Mormon fundamentalists are upset with Mormonism enough to picket it a lot of christians are like yeah we don't care mormons are weird but it's the people who grew up mormon and converted to an- grew up lds and converted to another doctrine including fundamentalism that really feel passionate about alerting people to mormonism's dangers yeah and what was hard in this particular at this particular general conference um which was 1977 it was the april 1977 conference uh, one of the reasons that the church was particularly frustrated um, that Leonard Arrington notes this particular one is that Fred Collier was handing out tracts with quotes from the archive um, that you wouldn't have access to about Adam God. And Fred Collier explicitly thanked the historical department for the quotes. What do you mean he thanked them? So in the tract, based on my reading of how Arrington is talking about this moment, um, he thanks the historical department for the quotes. Do you think that was a way of him positioning that this did indeed come from the church history department? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a way in which this is the kind of vindication of history that I mentioned that the fundamentalists can look in the archive and their whole worldview can be vindicated and their whole worldview is found in the archive. You know, if you go in the documents, you see the continued practice of plural celestial marriage, you see the importance of law of consecration, and you see the importance of the Adam God doctrine outside of just Brigham Young. You know, we so often, not we, but I don't know why I said we, so often people write off Adam God doctrine as some strange thing that Brigham Young created, but you go in the archive and you read the documents and you see that it wasn't just Brigham Young who believed that. And so a lot of the tracks that were and are created about the Adam God doctrine present that doctrine as something that 
may or may not have begun with Joseph Smith, and I would argue that it did, um, and continued way beyond Brigham Young, that apostles were believing this, Wilford Woodruff was talking about it. And so to thank the historical archive, he's showing that yes, it exists in the archive. And yes, this is just something that's really Mormon. And the fact that it's in restricted documents is showing that it's something they're worried about if they're hiding it. How did Leonard Arrington grapple with this, this conflict? The fact that this stuff was in the archives and he knew that they were covering it up or, or maybe not covering yeah. it up, but limiting sure. access. So Arrington was very for a more open archive, and he actually worked to get the archive to a point where people could. So if you go to the archive now, like, because I've gone there many times, um, I'm sure you have too. And one of the things that I really love the most about the Church History Library is that I've gone in there and I've been reading some microfilm and I see people come in and they're just so excited to read the diaries of their ancestors. And then they go in the reading room and they fumble for like 30 minutes with the microfilm machine because they're not trained historians. And then they just, they get to read the writings of their ancestors. And that's a really powerful thing for people. But there was a time when you couldn't do that. Like there was a time when people couldn't just go to the archives and read about their ancestors. And Leonard Arrington changed that. So he was very much for a more transparent archive. Like I said, warts and all, he was very much of the opinion that the church shouldn't have anything to hide. And if it does, well, then that should be dealt with. But, um, but he was also he was a alone. man of faith, right? I mean, none of this seemed yeah. to, it challenged his faith, but he never lost it. That's my understanding. Yeah, no, he was he was Mormon <laughs> until the day he died. Um, he was very Mormon. He was, you know, he was actually married twice. That's a fun fact that we can talk about um, in the Salt Lake Temple. Um, and this is a sidebar that I'd like to mention. Can I do that now about his marriage? Yeah, he's a polygamist. Yeah, he's a polygamist. So he was married, um, and her life coming moving for him to Salt Lake seemed pretty hard. And one of the things that I had a hard time with, honestly, reading the diaries is his wife passed away. And very, very soon after in the realm of a few months, he was dating again. And he actually met a woman who mentioned that she had discomfort about being sealed to him. And she suggested just being sealed for time. And she specifically references that she wasn't sure if his first wife would be happy about the eternal polygamy situation. Oh, wow. Um, and they end up not being sealed. So he's he does, not a polygamist. Well, no, no, he is. So he ends up not marrying her. He finds someone who will be sealed to him. And so he ends up being sealed in the Salt Lake Temple, surrounded by very just a few family and friends. And he is sealed wait, to someone wait, wait, else. Wait. Is the reason that that relationship didn't work out specifically over the ceiling? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say yes to that because I don't know. But she does say that. And then pretty soon after, he's dating someone else. I just learned something new. I also, this is a side note that has very little to do with this topic, but I really love Leonard's relationship with Carolyn Pearson. And I'm oh, biased because I, I love Carolyn Pearson. Do you want to like sum that up a little bit? Yeah. So Carolyn Pearson is mentioned so many times in the diaries and Leonard Arrington really seemed to love her. And he talks a lot about going over to her home and have, and sharing meals with her and having them over when Carolyn was still married to Gerald and just having them over all the time and hanging out. And he's even very honestly discloses his concerns about after she publicly supported the ERA and her, um, she couldn't publish anymore in the enzyme. Um, he expresses very real concerns about that, that he does not agree with the decision 
of the church to silence women who publicly supported the ERA. Yeah, and I think that that's a consistent thing that shows up in anyone that has ever talked about Leonard Arrington. So at Sunstone, we have all of these people that knew him. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that they say. He always had our back. He was always advocating for us, which is yeah. kind of the tragedy of his story, which we'll get into. So sorry, back to fundamentalism. So what else can we know about him and his relationship to this struggle? Leonard Arrington received his second anointing. And that has something to do with fundamentalism because pr- I promise. <laughs> so he... What's interesting is if you know about the second anointing, um, you're not supposed to talk about it at all. And so the reference to the second anointing, all it says, it's very sweet. It just says, went to the temple with my wife and had a lovely temple session like with President Kimball or something. And if you look at the date, it's on a Sunday. So if you are familiar with second anointings, you'll know that that's what was happening in that moment. And then, of course, he says, then I went home and watched a Jesus documentary with my wife, like a very Mormon thing to do. And this would have been his second wife, right? No, this was with his first wife. Oh, interesting. Maybe that, I'm I'm just speculating here now, but I wonder if that impacted his decision to get sealed for eternity to another woman. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that, so, because I was looking for where his second anointing would be, um, because I I assumed he would have received it and I had been told that he did. And so I was looking for it throughout the entire diaries. And when it finally happens, he makes that really veiled reference. Veil, pun intended. Veiled. I see what you did there. Yeah, and really quick, for those who don't understand what we're referencing, we did an entire episode on the second anointing. So I would go and look back in the archives so you can understand the context of why this is a big deal. Yeah. So he can't talk about it. So what's funny is, you know, it's coming because for like the entire week before his second anointing, he's frantically running around the church history department asking people if they know anything about it and its history. And then he's writing these long paragraphs describing the second anointing and what he knows about it historically and what it means for Latter-day Saints. And so, you know, it's coming because he's like scrambled. He asked Mike Quinn, um, who Leonard Arrington loved Mike Quinn, um, spoke very highly of him. So hired him into the church department. So that's who Mike Quinn worked under when he was working for the church. Uh, but what's funny is he ta- when he's learning about the second anointing and he's trying to kind of make sense of this practice that he's going to take part in, uh, he talks about its relation to fundamentalism. And he mentions how in the original ceremony, um, the sealing power is confirmed and how the shorthand for that was you know, the fullness. And then it began to trouble Mormon fundamentalists because the, the ceremony was changed and they left out the phrase, the fullness or, the, or any kind of conveyance of this. Um, and that's and interesting how, that fundamentalists would know that given the very secretive nature of the second anointing, but fundamentalists still use fullness right. to, as a shorthand to mean the highest order, uh, polygamy, Adam, God, second anointing, the fullness right. of the gospel. Right. And he specific, uh, Leonard Arrington specifically mentions that Heber J. Grant may have changed the ceremony so that the giving and receiving of that power wouldn't be given necessarily anymore. And so it's interesting how even in talking about his own life and his own ceremonies and what he's going to participate in, he's still, he's still kind of looking to the changes in the church and how fundamentalists have reacted to that. Okay. So he finds, he finds that time and time again, that the historical narrative vindicates at the very least a fundamentalist perspective. Why doesn't he become a fundamentalist? That's a good question. I mean, 
I mean, I could ask any really, really faithful LDS person that I guess um, fundamentalism is hard. I think I don't think people want to live it, but in general that are LDS, but for Leonard Arrington, he, he believed in, in the church structure, the church hierarchy, you know, he, for all the problems he had with the brethren, he speaks very highly of Spencer Kimball. The way he talks about the lifting of the priesthood ban is very faithful. And some of the gen- some of the general authorities especially are really made out to be incredible people. One of the things that I was surprised by, you know, I already liked Gordon B. Hinckley. I never had a problem with him, but he was made out to be a really great guy throughout the diaries. Um, and so I think Leonard Arrington believed in the brethren and I think he, he sustained them fully. I don't think that there was ever a question of his loyalty to the brethren. I think he had problems with how they viewed history and how it want, how they wanted it to be told. But I think at the end of the day, he was a really faithful Mormon. Some critics of his would say he was a company man. He absolutely towed the line. He did what they said. Um, and he helped them cover up church, church history. What would you say to that based on your readings? I think, I think these diaries present a man who was really caught in the middle of something. And I think the tension that he felt and how he experienced his job, I think it doesn't, he does, it's not sugarcoated. He doesn't make it seem easy. He really believes that he can write a faithful history that's objective. He really believes that. And he pulls no punches in showing that that might not be true. And he doesn't, he like, he'll, he'll let you know that he's really struggling with certain brethren. And toward the end of his life, he even says that he's not sure if that mission is even possible. He wants a faithful history, but he physically can't produce it. And for people who are familiar with his writing, once he let, once he was released from his calling, he wrote Brigham Young American Moses, um, you know, which he's still a Mormon. So it's still, a, you know, it, it's, it's not a, a quote, anti-Mormon book, whatever that phrase means, but it paints Brigham Young warts and all exactly what he thought history should be. And so, and I think he really makes it known that it was his calling in the church and his overhead and his, the oversight of the brethren that kind of made the history what it was. But if you know him and the writing he produced and his articles and his work, you'll see that he was not in the business of hiding things. Well, let's go back to his relationship with Fred Collier for a minute. Okay. I know you said that there's, well, actually this entire chapter of fundamentalism. Let's sort of break into that now. Sure. Again, one of the things he talks about is, he, he, so he knows, like he's not, he realizes fundamentalism is a thing. He goes to a lot of, he's part of a lot of different historical clubs and groups that meet um, to talk about church history and talk about the doctrines. Um, and so in, you know, in October of 1970, 1979, he goes to an event on polygamy in Utah. And so he, one of the things that I think is really important is he realizes that all fundamentalists aren't FLDS. Like he knows that there's multiple different groups. He knows that um, there's different ways to be fundamentalist and he acknowledges them. Um, and he specifically cites uh, what he calls the Johnson group, which is Short Creek. Uh, he cites the Allred group, the Alex Joseph group, the Kingston group, and then super strange, the LeBaron saga, <laughs> not group, saga, and how he talks about how, you know, these groups are a reality and how there is a concern for what they're doing by the brethren. Can you mm-hmm. share some particular quotes that are particularly illuminating? So in a few of the, so most of the references to fundamentalism are there's, you know, two varieties. There's one, there's reference to people who are becoming fundamentalist and concerned for the brethren by the brethren, which we mentioned. And then the bigger concern from a history, from a historian perspective is that fundamentalists are publishing things. Um, and 
on February 15th, 1973, um, he's at a meeting and they're specifically concerned about a fundamentalist pamphlet that they believe was prepared by the FLDS. Um, and they're the quote concealed revelations. And what he means by concealed are they're just revelations that have not been published prior by the church. And so he says, quote, the four revelations are the wilderness revelation of Wolford Woodruff when the United Order was being established, the revelation under Taylor to appoint Heber J. Grant and George Teasdale as apostles, the revelation of John Taylor counseling his sons and family to continue the practice of polygamy, uh, and another that he that that he just doesn't doesn't remember. Um, and so it's mentioned that, uh, and then also he mentions that if at this time he calls him Brother Anderson, but. Uh, it was An- the Anderson that worked at the church history department. So at, so Leonard Arrington in looking at these acknowledged that these revelations existed. Um, and he doesn't dismiss the authenticity of these four revelations, even though he doesn't name the last one, which is strange. Um, but the 1886 revelation we already mentioned as being one that he said was probably authentic, which I think is super exciting. Uh, but then the wilderness revelation is interesting because it's fairly anti-government um, that Wilford Woodruff wrote. And it specifically is Wilford Woodruff saying that the government is corrupt because they're get they're forcing people to stop practicing plural marriage. And so again, all the revelations he's talking about are very pro-fundamentalism. They're vindicating a fundamentalist position. And every time he's referencing these, he's not in any way saying they don't exist. Yeah, that's the part that I have a hard time wrapping my head around to this day. I understand. I mean, you know, reading Greg Prince's biographies of the modern church and things like that, I understand why they sort of become entrenched in this idea that we're going to deny polygamy, we're going to de- deny the right. history. But it still baffles me the the levels of, I don't know, ex-Mormons would call it dissonance that they, that they sure. keep in having the documentary history presented there. They know it. They right. believe in these guys as prophets, and yet they want to withhold it from the people. Yeah, so this is particularly interesting along those lines because he specifically talks about polygamy and the challenge of talking about it in the church. Um, on January 3rd, 1973, it says, quote, I mentioned the problem we have as historians of discussing polygamy. We must do it since it is part of our history. We cannot avoid discussing it, yet we cannot glorify it. That would play into the hands of the fundamentalists. Nor can we be overly critical of it. After all, the Lord commanded us to practice it. Brother Anderson said the principle of polygamy was correct, just as the United Order was correct, but we were not righteous enough to practice it correctly. He said that was the problem with polygamy. Not everyone was sufficiently righteous enough to practice it as it should be practiced. Well, I think that's helpful because that gives an institutional response Mm -hmm. to why there's this disconnect, that if we do allow it, then it allows people to be wicked and we're not ready for it. Yeah, I mean, but that's, the problem with that is that that's, you know, it's the institutional response in that it's a church leader saying it, but he never said that publicly. Right. You know, like he might have that opinion, but we haven't heard that spoken by a general authority in public. Right. Right. Like I haven't, I've never heard a general authority say polygamy is correct. We just weren't righteous enough people. <laughs> I've heard, and I don't think that's I've sim- heard similar folk doctrine, like uh, the Lord took it away at the time because he needed to, which I think there's an implication there. But I also think if if people were to hear that, that would that would give a lot of people some comfort. Mm-hmm. However, it's still it's still an acknowledgement that someday we yeah. will be ready to live it. 
yeah, you'll be right. If you're not righteous now, there might be a time. But I think that's a, I think that that quote is a particularly important quote because it shows Leonard Arrington's view of history generally that he's saying, we have to talk about this because it's part of our history and it's who we are, but we can't glorify it. And so I think that reflects his continued tension of how do we write true history, but how do we write it in a way that's faithful? And in his words, quote, doesn't play into the hands of the fundamentalists. So what other jewels did you discover about Arrington and fundamentalism? So many. I think the biggest is that he just owns that 1886 is true. Oh, one of the things I want to mention that is about that, that is about fundamentalists, and I think fundamentalists will appreciate this more than maybe LDS people will, was that in talking, thinking about the 1886 revelation and its historic importance, unlike other church, I'm going to be careful how I word this, unlike other church presidents, John Taylor's diaries were in the vault of the first presidency. And if you're not familiar, if you go to the church archive, you can type in keywords and do a keyword search, and you can look at different folders um, and what different folders hold. Even if they're restricted, you can see what's in different folders. But aside from that, there's the vault of the first presidency, and that holds um, particularly important things. So for example, the seer stone. The seer stone is in the vault of the first presidency. And I have often made the joke that the 1886 revelation is in there and the seer stone is a paperweight for it. And that might sound sacrilegious, but I don't, whatever. Um, But John Taylor talks about how, I mean, Leonard Arrington talks about how John Taylor's diaries were in the vault. And that's interesting that they wouldn't be in the general archival catalog. Um, But then they were checked out by David O. McKay and Leonard Arrington mentioned that he would go and try to check them out and try to check them out and they would be perpetually checked out and he couldn't get them. And then at one point they weren't in the vault anymore. Wow. Do we know where they ended up? No. And I don't want to speculate. I mean, I have speculations, but I don't want to like go on public record speculating where I think they are. Um, But it's okay. Joseph Smith appeared and took them up to heaven until we're ready for the principal again. It's fine they're with the gold plates in safekeeping um but the three nephites carry them on their hip wherever they go (laughs) i hope so okay Um, i'm just putting this out there if anyone does ever meet a, a one of the three nephites ask them what's in their backpack please for historical purposes we want those those journals back uh yeah uh we don't know where they are i mean I don't know. I'm maybe someone in church history knows. I want to hold out for that, but Leonard Arrington didn't know where they were, and he was the church historian. So I mean, hey, but hey, Matt Grow, let us know where are the where are the journals. Uh, I actually mentioned that this that story to Elder Snow at Mormon History Association this weekend, and he w- thought that was interesting that they weren't there. But yeah, I mean, shout out to everyone at church history. But he does mention, you know, Hiram Smith's garments are in there. So, I mean, I think that's super interesting as a non-relic tradition like Mormonism that I've had so many Mormons make fun of Catholics for having, you know, body parts in cathedrals. And Mormons are a relic tradition. It's just not disclosed publicly. Stop Along- with your Catholic agenda, all right? I'm just here to bring you all back Sister into the Sister Ros- Rosetti. <laughs> I'm just bringing you all back. The other thing that was interesting that, um, especially right now, for a lot, for those who don't know, the George Buchanan diaries were just released. They were initially released unredacted, and some folks 
downloaded them. Um, and then they were taken down and, you know, they're being re-released in redacted format. But early on in Leonard Arrington's diaries, he makes reference to the George Buchanan diaries and how uh, Dean Jesse requested to look at the 1886 diary. For those who don't know, George Buchanan was very much part of early fundamentalist history and was present at the meeting where the 1886 revelation came out of. And Dean Jesse wanted to look at the George Buchanan diaries from that time. And the general authorities thought it was best for Dean, for everyone to lie low um, about 1886 and about George Buchanan's reference to 1886. And they specifically mentioned the issues with Irva LeBaron that were happening at the time um, and that they didn't need to open up things that could be controversial surrounding that. And so that's pretty interesting that uh, that specific year continually comes up, people wanting to look at documents from that time. And because that's a time that really vindicates fundamentalists and it's kind it's specifically shut down. So we're getting short on time, but what other gems did you want to highlight because really I want people to buy this book. I think fundamentalists it's would great. really get a lot from this book. But what things should we know? What things should you know? Do you want quotes or do you just want what things you should know? I just want to highlight some of the things you found particularly interesting with your relationship to understanding fundamentalist peoples and history. I think his thing, and it's not necessarily fundamentalism, but I think it'd be good for people generally, if that's okay, like kind of along the more the one way to Mormon thing. Yes, please do, because this is something that I'm, it's a doctrine I'm consistently preaching. Okay. Uh, so this doesn't necessarily go with fundamentalism, but I think it's important to kind of think about how Mormonism can be practiced for people in a broader sense, the way you talk about more than the way to Mormon. And it's kind of, it's the quote that I mentioned earlier about Arrington and how you said that he pioneered this before you did. And yeah, probably because I think, so Leonard Arrington is viewed as a faithful person. He's viewed, and I hope that that doesn't change because in my reading of him, he is very faithful to the church. He does support the brethren. He's super Mormon in the LDS variety. But I think that he presents a way for people to believe and practice that might be different from what we all look at as the standard Orthodox belief system. And so it, toward the, in 1977, um, he talks about books that were really influential to him. And he talks about one book, it's called Reason and Religion, and it helped him um, to understand how we look at theological truth and theological affirmation that religious doctrines could be symbolic and that scientific truth could be embraced and you could still be religious. So you could embrace science and symbolism and then also maintain your religion. And he says, quote, in the Mormon epic, one may believe in the first vision without worrying unduly as to whether God and Jesus literally appeared in person to Joseph Smith or whether he thought he saw them in a mystical sense. Did the plates of the Book of Mormon exist in a concrete, literal sense, or did they exist in a symbolic sense? I feel comfortable either way. And that's wow, big. Well, and especially for the, the time period, I mean, it's taken me years and years to work on the backs of so many other people to get this idea going, and it's consistently shut down in the Orthodox narrative, right? And so I can only right. imagine the pushback that he might have received. And yet, 
he came by it just so honestly and earnestly and innocently, right? He just, he had faith in his church that it was big enough for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, he talks about that he, he uses the phrase anti-intellectualism. He believed, he believed the church was going through a period of anti-intellectualism and he says something that I thought was really important, especially in, in light of a time when so many people are reading church history and a lot of people rightfully so are being bothered by it. And I don't want to diminish the fact that people learn church history and it's hard. Like I do not want to diminish, diminish the pain people feel when they read church history um, and either feel betrayed and lied to or just feel really bothered by the messiness of the past. But he says, quote, many Mormons miss the power of the restoration message by attempting to abstract its teachings from their historical context. And so Arrington really believed that there has to be a way in which you can know the truth of history and you can still just be a Mormon. And I think that goes back to what you talk about, about black and white thinking that why, like you can just have both. Like you can just have both. I want to shout out importance of Arrington's work because you know, when you first started off and you, and you say something like he wants a faithful, objective history, I'm like, well, it's not objective if it's faithful. But I think a, a better way to phrase his work is there's an affection that he has for Mormonism that mm-hmm. comes clear in his work, yeah. even though he just dis- he disgu- discussed the warts and all. And I think that that has really inspired me in the work that I've done just to know that Leonard Arrington could tell the story in an accurate way. But with an affection for his subjects, that was really inspiring to me. Yeah, and that he was willing to think that there has to be a way that there can be a nuanced view of Mormonism. That it might not that maybe you don't believe in a literal verse vision account, but you can still be you can still find a way to be a Mormon. And I think I think that's one of the biggest strengths of this book for just for such a variety of people. And I think that's why this book can touch such a variety of people. Um, because Leonard Arrington allows space for so many different ways of being Mormon that I don't think is found in the writings of other church leaders right now. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that that expresses sort of this tension, right? Like if we allow people to claim their faith on their own, mm-hmm. then what, who's in charge, right? <laughs> what do we need yeah. the brethren for? Or are we going to have people doing stuff we say not to do, like practicing plural marriage or, right. you know, who who knows what else? And I think Leonard Arrington would answer, yes, and so what, <laughs> you know? Right. And I mean, and I don't, want to, I don't want to make it seem like he was blind to the hardship of people who had um, views counter to, you know, 1970s Mormon orthodoxy, because he does reference the excommunications very strongly. Some of his good friends were excommunicated. And he even goes as far as to calling it the Inquisition, which my Catholic soul died a little bit, but um, he realizes this is a problem. So, and, and he speaks out about it. Well, I really appreciate you, first of all, reading all of those pages. <laughs> and second of all, coming on and talking about it. And of course, um, we'll probably have you on again, because I do want to talk about modern fundamentalists as well. But you're going to be presenting on this Mm-hmm. on this topic in a more broad sense, not just Leonard Arrington and fundamentalism, but his journals in general. So uh, that will be Sunstone the weekend of July 25th through the 28th, 2018 at the Southtown Expo Center. So come see Christina. And Christina, is there anything else you want to leave us with? I would just say support signature books, buy their books. They're awesome. Read documentary history. It's like It might seem super dry to read someone's diaries, but you find amazing things in there. 
Okay, well, Christina, thanks so much for coming on and telling this important history. Thanks. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.